The Christian of the 21st century, like the Christian of any century, is called to live out the gospel, right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We weren't saved and called out by God to be trophies put in a trophy case. We're human beings made in the image of God to live out the life of Christ that is in us as a reasonable and logical response and an ongoing act of worship to the God of heaven and his name is Yahweh. The highest calling and life in the entire world is this. It is the calling and life of a Christian. It's the highest calling that there is. There's nothing greater in the world than to be redeemed and restored back from sin and death to fulfill the purpose of being the Lord's representative in the earth. And because of this, it is imperative that we continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel and the word of God. It's important for our walk with the Lord. It's important concerning the command, the command that we have to live for God, to live for Christ and for the glory of God. We're here in Peter's epistle, his first epistle, and Peter is, he's been exhorting the Christians of the first century to live the separated life of a Christian. We're called, Peter said, to be holy. He said, be holy as the Lord is holy. And so we're called to be holy. What's that? We're called by God to be holy, to be separate, to be different. We're called out to be, we're different from the world. If you're a Christian, you're called to be different from the people that are not calling upon the name of Christ. You're called out to a separated, holy, different life, according to his word. In our text tonight, in the little passage of scripture in 1 Peter that we're going to look at, Peter continues on this theme of being holy, separate, different in a fallen world. He tells us how to conduct our lives in Christ. So that's the question tonight. That's the question that we come to. How is it that we're to conduct our lives? How is it that you're supposed to live? Where, wherever you are in your life, how is it that you are to conduct your life? How is it that you're to live for the Lord as a Christian? These are great questions for the believer. And Peter give us some answers tonight in our text. And so I've got a couple of points tonight if you're taking notes. Um, the first one is this, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. How are you to live for God? You're to fear the Lord. Let's pick it up. Verse 17 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it says this, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Let's stop right there, just verse 17. How do you live the Christian life? How do you live for the Lord in the 21st century? Peter tells us right here, in fear. We're to live out, we're to conduct our lives along our stay here on planet Earth. We're to conduct it in fear. Fearing the Lord is a good place to start. If you want to know how to conduct your life as a Christian, fearing the Lord is a good place to start and worshiping Him with your life. I'm going to reference a familiar psalm here, actually a proverb, Proverbs 9, verse 10, and it's an important one. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's a very important verse of Scripture because it tells us 
where the beginning of wisdom is. It's, it comes in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we're to fear the Lord. Now, some might say, well, wait, wait just a second right there. You say I'm supposed to fear the Lord. Uh, isn't God love? I mean, I, I think I heard somewhere where it says God is love. And how is it that we're supposed to be to, to fear the Lord? And doesn't it also say that perfect love casts out fear, right? And so these things on the surface seem to be in contradiction, but I think it's because we need to take a look, a closer look at, at what Peter is meaning here by conducting ourselves in fear and taking a closer look at the word for fear here in verse 17 in 1 Peter 1. And it is the Greek word, the original Greek word phobos. It's the word phobos. And um, you are familiar with at least the, 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 the root there, phobia. Uh, and so you're familiar with different kinds of phobias, right? Does anybody have any phobias in here? Raise your hand if you've got some phobias. No? You guys, no, no, no phobias? You got some phobias? People have different kinds of fears. And I looked up some of the fears. There's this one. Uh, are you familiar with this? Arachnophobia. Yeah, that's probably the most popular one, right? Do you have arachnophobia? That's the fear of spiders, right? Arachnophobia. I think there was a movie actually on that, arachnophobia. Or there's acrophobia. Maybe you have that. Maybe you have acrophobia, which is actually the fear of heights. Anybody have the fear of heights? Yeah, that's acrophobia. Then there's glossophobia, you say, what's that? That's the fear of doing what I'm doing right now, which is public speaking, which is in most of the list. If you ask people, that comes up at the top of most people's list. They have glossophobia, um, not being able to stand in front of people and talk and, and do what I'm doing right now. Right now, I do not have glossophobia. Thank you. I love you and you love me and we're just having a good time. Amen. Now, here's one that I found. And I'm going to try to pronounce this fear, okay? It's hippopotamonstrosaquidileophobia. Yeah, that sounds like hippopotamus in there, right? Yeah. This is an actual fear. It's the fear of long words. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> It's the fear of long words. And I have a fear of actually trying to pronounce that fear. That's the fear that I have tonight, actually trying to pronounce it. You'll remember that Charlie Brown went to seek counsel from Lucy, and she was going to tell him what fear that he had. And she went through a list of fears. And then at the end of the list, she says, well, maybe you have pantophobia. And... He said, well, what's that? And she said, the fear of everything. <laughs> and she said, that's it. That's it, right? He had the fear of everything. Now, Peter is not saying here in verse 17 of our passage, he is not saying that we're to have those types of fears, those types of phobias. We're not to live in these kinds of fears. The fear that we are to have as a believer is really a reverence and an awe of God. We're to have a reverence for God in our lives. We're to have a fear. We're to, have, we're to be in awe of God in our lives. We need to live our lives in a great reverence and awe of God 
who he is and what he's done in our lives. We need to be in awe of who he is and we need to be in awe of what he's done in our lives. If you're saved, you, the, the, the fear of God, the fact that he has brought you into the family of God, that he's brought you out of darkness into light, the fact that he's brought you from death to life, there should be a reverence and an awe just in that very fact of what he's done in your life. Kittle, which is one of the theological dictionaries that uh, New Testament scholars use and pastors, um, I, I've got a couple of, um, actually I have all 11 volumes of the Kittle series, but it, 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 he says this, he says, uh, this life, it, the Christian life, is the fear that characterizes those who've been freed from their futile ways. And so the fear that we have in Christ, in God, is a fear of God and that we've been delivered from the futility of living for, with no purpose whatsoever. And so we've gotten rid of all that and we've come in just to the fear and reverence and awe of Almighty God. And so the fear of the Lord is a chief characteristic of a Christian. The fear of the Lord is a chief characteristic of a believer. The Christian realizes this one important thing, that God is right there with them. And if God is right there with you, then that should bring about a little bit of reverence and awe and fear in the life of the Christian. Because let's face it, the non-believer does not go around and live their life with a consciousness that God is right there with them, that God is, is, is there in them, as, as, as Mary Jo so eloquently uh, referenced those passages about the Spirit being in us and upon us. And so if the Spirit is in you and you're a believer, then you walk around with a consciousness that God is with you, and the, the, the non-believer does not do that. I mean, yeah, we realize that, right? Yeah. And sometimes we are not reminded of that fact either. But as a Christian, we need to be reminded of that fact that God is right there with us. He's not far away, tucked away somewhere in some cosmic heaven somewhere. He's right here. He's right here with us. He's right here where you are. The God of heaven is right there. Remember when Moses saw the bush on fire. Remember he was in the desert he, he grew up in the palace in, in, in Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt. He, was, he, he had been adopted as a son of, of Pharaoh. Remember when the Pharaoh's daughter had pulled him uh, up out of the, the river Nile there? And he grew up, and of course he had fled. I uh, don't have time to go through the whole story of Moses, but you know the story. He fled out of Egypt and into the desert of Midian there and ended up uh, marrying a girl and ended up working for his father-in-law, tending his father-in-law's animals. And there, when he was, the Bible says, on the backside of the desert, I always, I reference that even in my book because it's like, God will find you. You think you're on the backside of somewhere, God's going to find you. You think you're, you, you, uh, you know, no one's there, no one's watching. You know, you found the most, you know, obscure place that you can possibly find. No, God's going to, God's right there with you. And that's exactly what Moses discovered. On the backside of the desert, he looks over and there's a bush burning. And it's not being consumed by the fire. The, the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And the God of heaven speaks to Moses from the midst of the bush. And he says, he, he, he tells uh, Moses who he is and all this. And you remember, what is Moses? 
uh, what does God tell Moses? One of the things that he tells him, he says, take off your sandals, right? He says, take off your sandals. Today he would have said, take off your, your Nikes, <laughs> right? Take off your um, Jimmy Choo's, I don't know, <laughs> right? <laughs> take off your Joseph Abood's. Because the land, the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. God was there, and where God was was holy ground. Amen? And so God told Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Now you fast forward 40 years to the time when Joshua was taking the children of Israel, the group that the, the sons and daughters of the group that Moses brought out of Egypt, and he brings them across the Jordan. And when jo- Joshua goes up in, in front of Jericho, this is before they go to the Battle of Jericho, at night in the plain in front of Jericho, Joshua meets someone. And it's very reminiscent of the burning bush scene because this particular person tells Joshua, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And I believe from that text in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, that it is none other than Jesus Christ who spoke to him, who is the captain of Yahweh's army and fought the, the battle of Jericho. You remember the song, Who Fought the Battle of Jericho? Yeah, it was Jesus who fought the battle of Jericho. Amen? And so he says, take off your sandals because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And so again, if you're following me, wherever God is, is holy ground. It's holy ground. The picture for the Christian is clear. When you're putting the sole of your feet somewhere as a Christian because God is with you, When you put the sole of your foot somewhere, guess where you're standing? Holy ground. Because God is holy, you are holy, and the ground where you stand, Christian, is holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. Earlier in this chapter, we learned about the everlasting inheritance that we have as Christians. And for the inheritance that Israel had was the land. And that land was holy ground, and it was God's land. And it's holy land. And and I want to reference tonight a a very interesting uh, example uh, for us as believers of something that we can take away with this whole concept of we're living on holy ground in, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Amen? And it's found in the book of 2 Kings. It's in the book of 2 Kings, and you'll remember the story of a Syrian commander, army commander, who had leprosy, and his name was Naaman. Remember that? Naaman, he was a Syrian army commander. And this is found in 2 Kings, that Naaman, the Syrian army commander, had leprosy. And leprosy was, you didn't want leprosy. Leprosy, there was basically no cure for it, and you were basically... Uh, you would, as, as it became worse, you would find yourself just literally on the outskirts of, of, 
of the uh, fellowship of the city or the town or the country that you were in. And so Naaman, as the story goes, he has a servant girl in his company who happens to be an Israeli <laughs> Jewish servant girl. And this little servant girl uh, says, you know what you need to do, Naaman? You need to go and talk to the prophet of God in Israel. His name is Elisha, and if you go to Elisha, he can, he can do something about your situation because there's a God in Israel that can do something about your situation. And so Naaman, said, Naaman says, hey, that's what we're going to do. So Naaman travels from Syria to Israel, and he goes down, and he's going to meet with Elisha to do something about his leprous situation. And what happens is Elisha actually doesn't come out to meet Naaman, but he sends word to Naaman of, here's what you need to do. If you want to be healed of this leprosy, follow these instructions. Go down to the Jordan River and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and you're going to be whole. And of course, if you read the whole story, Naaman has, takes issue with that for a little while. He actually complains about, you mean you came all the way down here to, to, to dip in the Jordan River? I could have dipped in one of the rivers up in uh, uh, Syria and done this, but you brought me all the way down here to get in this, this measly old river? And, and the, the, you know, the, the servant says, well, you know, had he asked for you to do something harder, would you have done that? Yeah. Well, why won't you do the simple thing? And so he says, okay, I'll do it. And so he does it. He gets down in the, in the, the Jordan River, and he's healed. Now, before he goes back to Syria, he wants to meet with Elisha, and he wants to give Elisha a gift. And that's the passage that I want to read for you. It's found in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, verse 15. I'm going to be reading these four or five verses here from 15 to 19. And it says this, And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides. This is speaking of Naaman. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. So Naaman is saying, look, I'm acknowledging the God of Israel. I'm acknowledging the God of Israel, and I want to give you a gift for this, just the whole situation. You know, he just felt like he wanted to, you know, do something for Elisha. Verse 16, but he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so Elisha says, no, I'm not going to take your gift. You, you just go on your way. Everything's fine. You just go on your way. I'm not going to take, take the gift. But Naaman kind of, you know, tries to plead with him, take the gift, take the gift. Elisha says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm refusing. Look at, look at verse 17 and look what, this is so interesting. Look what Naaman says. So Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And then he said to him, go in peace. So we departed from him a short distance. Okay, wow, let's stop right there. So what is, you're, you're like, are you guys with me? Okay, listen to this. Naaman is healed of leprosy. 
He goes to give a gift to Elijah. Elisha says no. And he says, okay, so if you're not going to take my gift, then grant me this. Let me take two mule loads of dirt back to Syria. And what is his reasoning? What is his rationale? That he wants to take the holy ground back with him to be able to worship in that place in Syria and be able to worship on the holy ground that is the land of Israel. Because remember, if you understand the Old Testament, you have to understand that Israel, the portion of land that God gave to Israel is Yahweh's ground, and he, it is his inheritance, and it's the inheritance of Israel, and it's holy ground. And there's other passages that I could reference that, to really dig down on this to really prove the point, but I think you're with me here. Here's what Naaman wants. He wants two truckloads of dirt, okay, two mule loads of dirt to take back to Syria. And when I read this, it just literally floored me because here is Naaman, who's a Syrian army commander, and he is asking to take back part of the holy ground so that he can worship Yahweh God when he gets back to Syria. And then the whole discourse about, hey, you know, when I go back and I have to stand with the king of Syria and he goes in to worship the other god, Ramon, right? You know, please forgive me because I'm not doing it because I want to do it just because I'm the, I'm the, you know, Syrian army commander and I have to go in there and let him just kind of do his thing. But please forgive me when all that goes down. But just give me two dirt loads. Just give me two dirt loads of the holy ground of Israel. And Christian, Christian, we're standing on holy ground. Amen. We're standing on holy ground where you set the foot. If you're a believer, where you set the foot of your feet is holy ground. Why? Because God is holy. You have been made holy as a believer in Christ. And because God is with you, now it is holy ground. And it's the place of worship because where you live your life is worship to God. And then, therefore, it becomes holy ground. Amen. And so we're to fear the Lord and we're to realize that we're on holy ground. So you may think that you're out, you know, doing your thing. You may be thinking you're riding around. All you're doing is riding around. You're not just riding around. Man, this is blowing me to, this is blowing me away. When I'm riding around with a bunch of mattresses, guess what? I'm worshiping the Lord on holy ground. Amen. Rob, when you're riding around in that brown truck with all those boxes, you're riding around these streets on holy ground living for Jesus. Because where you, Christian, put the sole of your feet is holy ground because God is holy and you are holy. You've been made holy because of him and he's in you. Amen? And so we're to live. The life of, of the believer is to live in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Amen? Amen. I wish I could just go on and on about this point because this thing is so awesome and so great. But I've got to move on because we're coming to the table of the Lord tonight. Amen? So, wow, we live in the holy fear of the Lord and worship on holy ground. And that is a powerful, powerful truth for us to know. Now, the second point tonight, how you conduct your life as a Christian, as a 21st century Christian the first one, fear the Lord. Second one, know the gospel. Know the gospel. Let's go back to 1 Peter, pick it up, verse 18 in chapter 1. It says this. Knowing 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So how do you conduct your life as a believer, as a Christian in the 21st century? First, fear the Lord. Second, know the gospel. He says, look, you're conducting yourself. He says, verse 17, and if you call on the Lord, the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. So there's a progression here. If you're going to live for God, if you're going to live for God, conduct yourself in fear because of everything that God's done for you. And as you're conducting yourself in fear, you're doing that because you know, you know what? You know that you weren't redeemed with corruptible things. And so, and he goes into the the very thing that you were redeemed with, which is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so the, 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 the point is, that as you conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord, you're doing that because you know the truths of the gospel, knowing that you weren't redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so what Peter does is he begins to spell out some important things about the gospel that you know. You're conducting your life in fear. You're living for the Lord. You're being holy as he is holy. Why? Because you weren't because you know the gospel. You know that you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. You know how you were saved. And you know how you weren't. You weren't saved because you had enough money. You weren't saved because you had gold. You, you, you can't buy it. You know, Bill Gates. You know, Steve Jobs. Billions and billions of dollars. They, they, they could, you're not going to hand God a bank account and say, hey, let, let me in. You know how you were saved. You were saved with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Gold and silver are corruptible. They're things of earth. There's a principle in the, in, in the world that's at work. It's called entropy. It's a law of entropy. This world is breaking down. And it's, 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 these things are corruptible. But you weren't purchased with any earthly commodity. We're bought and paid for by the very blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? We weren't bought by anything that they're buying and selling at the Chicago Board of Trade. We were bought and paid for with the very blood of Jesus Christ. You say the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the a man came and died, bled for you. Yeah, he had to be a man. This is part of the gospel. We, we talked about this as we did our little survey through Ruth back at Christmas time. And we learned about the kinsman redeemer, and we learned about how the kinsman redeemer had to be a kinsman. He, if he was going to be a redeemer, he had to be a kinsman. And so our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer, has to be a kinsman to us. He had to be flesh and blood to redeem us, to buy us. He had to be 
a perfect man. Our Savior had to be man, but he had to be perfect. He's the God-man. He's the God-man, and so he, he is, was a man, but he's also God, and he lived his life perfectly, and so he's the perfect Savior. He's the perfect Redeemer. And look at that, what Peter says here. He says, but you were bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse 19. And you find this all the way back. You know, you see this in the book of Exodus. Well, you see it all the way through the Bible, but I want to take you back to Exodus in the commandment that they had in Egypt as uh, God was going to bring that 10th plague upon Egypt and it was going to be the Passover, right? And so they were instructed to take a lamb. Each family was instructed to take a lamb into their family on the 10th day of the, of the month of Nisan. And, you know, not Nisan like a Nisan Maxima, but the month of Nisan, amen? The month of Nisan, on the 10th day, they were to take a lamb into their family, and it had to be a certain type of lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be it, it could not have a spot or a blemish on it. It could not be blemished. It could not have a deformity. It couldn't be crippled. It couldn't have that type of spot on it. It had to be a perfect lamb. And, and so look at Exodus 12, verse 5. This is the instruction for the lamb that they were to take. He says, you sh your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And so... Your lamb shall be without blemish. The word blemish here is the word tamim in the Hebrew, and it means complete, whole, entire, sound, uh, whole, sound, healthful. The lamb of God, without blemish, was given on our behalf. He, he, he was perfect. He was 100% sound. He was 100% complete. He was perfect without blemish. And the lamb of God that without blemish, shed his blood, and because of that, you have been redeemed by this gift of the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. Now back in 1818, there were some brothers, last name Brooks, that founded a clothing company. And you may be familiar with Brooks Brothers, and I want to show you what their logo is. Their logo actually is the spotless Lamb of God wrapped up in a bow given to you. Blameless and spotless and without blemish for you. You're bought and paid for. Not with corruptible things, but with the perfect Lamb of God without blemish, without spot. Amen. Peter goes on, and we're drawing to a close. He says, who was foreordained. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world to, to, to come and, and do this work of redemption. The work of Jesus was not a plan developed late in the course of redemption. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before the Lord laid the foundation of the earth, he has been the lamb slain before the foundation. In other words, God didn't have to, you know, God in his foreknowledge 
didn't have to react to the fall and, and the sin of mankind and go, oh my goodness, I've got to come up with a plan. What am I going to do with men and women who've sinned and fallen away from me? No, he had a plan to deal with the sin that mankind uh, committed in their free will, in their, their free will act of, 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 of decision to, to rebel against God, to disobey his command. God had a plan, amen? And this is all a part of the gospel. See, you know this. As a Christian, you know, you know that you've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. You know that it was a perfect, spotless lamb. You know that Christ was the lamb that was selected before the foundation of the earth was laid. These are the things that you know. We have to know this in order, we, it, 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 this is stuff that's in our minds, in our heads, in our spirits, in us as we live for the Lord day by day. Amen? The gospel is for you who through him believe in God. Peter says here that the entire plan of redemption is for those who believe in God. If you're, if you're believing in God tonight, if you're believing in Jesus Christ, this gospel that you know, it's for you. It's for those who would come and believe in the plan of God. Now, these are some of the main key points of the gospel message. Just a couple of them that Peter is just kind of outlining here in just some very short space. Key points of the gospel message. But as Christians, we keep learning. Amen? This isn't an exhaustive theology of the gospel here in these couple verses that we've just read. This, this is just a couple of the finer points that we know. But as Christians, we don't stop there. We keep knowing. We keep learning. We keep learning, and that's what you've got to know. He says, you conduct your life in this world in fear, knowing what? Knowing da 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 all these things. And this isn't where you stop, Christian. You keep learning. You keep growing in your knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? As I draw to a close, I want to go back to the word knowing in verse 18. Look at it. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. And then he begins the list. The word knowing there is not the word in the Greek that many are familiar with that when you come to the word to know, which is in the Greek, gnosko. In the Hebrew, yada. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. You know, you know, you know. This is not that word. This is, is a word, ido. Knowing, ido. Okay? And it means this. It means to see to perceive with the eyes, to perceive by any of the senses, to perceive, to notice, to discern, to discover, to turn the eyes, the mind, the attention to anything, to pay attention to, to observe, to see about something, to ascertain what must be done about it, to inspect, to examine it, to look at, to behold. And so, you see, this is what Peter is saying, he's saying, you know, knowing that you have not been redeemed with corruptible things. See, you've taken a look at the gospel. You've, you've perceived the gospel, Christian. Christian, you have taken a look at the gospel when you perceived it and you've looked at it and you've behold it. And, 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 and in, in many cases, we've examined it and, and, and we've looked at it and we've, we've We've paid attention to it, and we've observed it, and we've ascertained what must be done about it. 
We've inspected it. And so the gospel is something that you look at one time and then you've got the whole thing. It's like if you're going to look at the gospel, you don't look at it like when we look at the gospel, if you've responded to the gospel at some point in your life and you said, yeah, I'm a sinner and I know that, that God's standard is perfection, is absolute perfection, and through Christ, he gives me that perfection because he was the lamb that died on the cross, shed his blood on my behalf. And so I accept that. And so you accept and examine in those early stages of your Christian life that, that, that level of concept of the gospel. But Christian, that's not where you start or stop. That's not where you stop. You continue to look at the gospel. You continue to examine it. You continue to behold it. There's part of this word Ido that not only means to know, but to learn. Because if you're examining something, if you're looking at something, if, if you're inspecting something, you're looking at it to, to learn something about it, to examine it. If you examine, I don't know, whatever it is that you examine in your life. I actually did a, I, 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 I spoke for a, a metal conference. I was, at, I was invited to speak and do a morning breakfast, prayer breakfast for a conference uh, in Orlando for these people that work in the metal industry for businesses that make things with metal. And there's an inspection process that goes along with making sure that the metals meet the specific requirements. And so when you look at something, you, you continue to look at, you continue to examine. Amen? And so you continue, not only do you know the gospel as you knew it on the day that you gave your life to Christ, but you continue to examine it, you continue to look at it, you continue to learn it all the days of your life. And so how is it that you're going to live, for the, live your, your life for Christ in this world? How are you going to be a 21st century Christian? Well, you're going to live it in the fear of the Lord on holy ground with the Spirit of God living inside of you. And you're going to know in that fear of the Lord that you were not bought with corruptible things. You're going to know the gospel. You perceived it when you got saved. And you're going to continue to perceive it all the way through. And you're never, ever going to come to the point where you've got this figured out. I was listening to a guy the last couple of weeks, and he says, if you find somebody that says that they've got this whole thing figured out and how it's all going to work out and the whole prophetic timeline, and they can tell you every little thing, run away. Run away because nobody's got this whole thing figured out. Amen? But we're continuing to examine it, and we're continuing to look at it because we know that we've been bought and paid for by the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. As you continue to examine the gospel message, you come to new revelations of the love of Christ. Man, you come to those times in your life where you're blown away again by the love of Christ in a way that you'd never been blown away by it before. You, 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 think you, you think you came to understand and know the level and the depth of God's love until five years from now when you're examining it again in the place where you've walked through with Christ over the next five years and you'll sit there and you'll say, my goodness, I do not believe the depth of the love of God that I now ascertain, that I now behold in my life. And so Christian, wow. You say, how do you live for Christ? 
man, we've got, we've got God in our lives. We're standing on holy ground in the fear of the Lord, and we've got a gospel. We've got a gospel that's more than enough for our lives. Amen? Amen? And, and that's how we live for the Lord in this world. 